Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm the host of A People's Theology, Mason Meninga. In this episode, I talk with Mickey Scott Bay Jones. Mickey is a womanist, justice doula, and leader within movement chaplaincy. Also musically featured throughout this episode is Reverend Sekou. Reverend Sekou is a blues and gospel artist from Memphis, Tennessee. You can get connected with Mickey and Reverend Sekou and their work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of A People's Theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meninga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. Today we have Mickey Scott Bay Jones, and I am so excited for this conversation, Mickey. Mickey, you do amazing things in the world, including you're a movement chaplaincy person, so you're a movement chaplain, and you also are a womanist, and there's just so many other things that you do in the world. But who is Mickey Scott Bay Jones to Mickey Scott Bay Jones? <laughs> um, well, as you said, my name is Mickey Scott Bay Jones, and even my name has a story to it. Um, oh, oh, I need to hear this story. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's not my legal name, but I always say my parents uh, couldn't even agree what to name me. So <laughs> my legal name is different. And then Mickey is the nickname I've had basically since the day I was born. 
Um, and I feel like I just am a Mickey. And um, Scott Bay is a family name on the other side. Uh, we were Moorish Science Temple Muslims, which is a oh. small Muslim sect that was kind of formed around the same time as the Nation of Islam. Huh. Um, but Nation of Islam won out just like in Christian, Christian sects, right? Like we have sects that mm-hmm. ran that like kind of ran the others off, right? And like became the dominant ones. Um, and so there are still a few more science temples around um, and a few of us, but that's why we have the Bay. Um, and then Jones is my married name. Um, I was married for 20 years. I jokingly say I was a child bride because I got married when I was 19. So I was a good evangelical girl right. um, who learned it was be- better to marry than to burn with lust. So I got married as a child and then was married for 20 years. Um, and I'm no longer married. And I've had a whole journey with my theology, with mm-hmm. my sexuality, with everything. Um, and so my name, you know, like is part of my story. Um, and I consciously took my um, maiden name slash family name back on as a way to stand in solidarity with Muslims worldwide and to kind of claim my family history away. So it was a, you know, a specific decision um, in my professional life to use all three names. And my pronouns are she and Diva. Mm. And I, who am I? Uh, I am a womanist, um, a black woman who um, was theologically trained by indigenous folks in the Nates Mm. program. Um, North American Institute for Indigenous Theological Studies. And they welcomed my womanist theology with open arms. And so I would add books like um, books by Bell Husser, Dean Emily Towns to um, our mostly indigenous book lists, and they welcome that. And uh, I am a mom um, and a friend, uh, a partner. Um, and I love to get in good trouble. Um, I'm a dancer. Um, dance has saved my life over and over again. Uh, and I consider myself uh, a pilgrimage leader, activist. Like I like, I really love to sit at tables with people um, from different places and exchange stories. And so my, I've been craving that through this whole pandemic and it hasn't, um, you know, been something I could do. I'm also the the daughter of um, a mother taken by COVID. Um, mm. And so that's mm. been a huge reality during this time for me. Mm. So yeah, that's a little bit about who I am. Yeah. So among the many things you are, you are also a movement chaplain. And I find this work revolutionary work. Can you talk a little bit about what is it exactly you do as a movement chaplain? And sure. uh, yeah, what what is movement chaplaincy and what's your role in it? Yeah. So in my professional life, I am the director of healing and resilience initiatives with Faith Matters Network. And we're a womanist led organization. And our focus is really on supporting activist organizers, clergy, community leaders in their social, emotional, spiritual health and sustainable leadership. Like, how are they going to keep together so they can keep doing what they do in the world? Um, and so that work has evolved over the last, I don't know, five or six years. We've kind of done a lot of different things. But since 2016, we've been asking this question about, is there a, a kind of place or um, a vocation for people who do the spiritual care work of our movements? 
right, uh, for who are attending to the emotional, spiritual, relational, um, sometimes physical care needs of our change makers, mm. of our activists and organizers. So we gathered some folks in 2016 after that election, and it was, we learned a lot in that gathering because people that were that were the spiritual spiritual caregivers uh, caregivers of our movements were struggling as well because mm. we had all just been through the 2016 election and we realized that yes this is a thing but there isn't kind of a, a specialized training um, there isn't kind of a, a a a network a connection between folks who have said hey yeah uh, you're a movement crew, you need somebody to talk to, or our church in, is engaged in Black Lives Matter work, and you're really struggling because of what you've seen and that what you now understand. There, there weren't always kind of spiritual care, caregivers for that, like keepers of that emotional work. Or if they were, they just weren't named, and they didn't really know there were other people that did it, and it was just like, okay. And so we started developing a training. And so that's where movement chaplaincy really grew out of. We have elders and ancestors in the movement. Um, this work has always been with us as part of movement work, um, but we've really been the ones to kind of nurture it and develop it into a vocation. And so it, it's really an emerging vocation. We're still learning everything together. And there are other people that are now, you know, picking it up and like, ooh, I think this is what I do, you know? And that's one of the things I love seeing again and again in the 12-week course that we teach is like people it's like, it's that light bulb moment where they're like, oh, my, there are other people? Like, I, I feel like I've been doing this and like, this makes so mm. much sense, but they just didn't know. And so th- I love that. I love people feeling like they've come home, like they've found other people that they can belong with and other people who are, you know, trying to develop their skills and serve in the same way. Mm. I love that so much. One of the things that I've noticed being a person in the Twin Cities is you now we have these sort of sacred spaces, the George Floyd Memorial, uh, where Dante Wright was recently killed as well. And these places have become sacred spaces, not to mention all the other sacred spaces around not only the Twin Cities, but around the nation and around the world. But what I find really, really interesting is how chaplains sort of are able to open this space up for that sacredness, for that spirituality that a lot of people are kind of craving for as they go in as protesting or whatever they might be doing in those certain spaces. And I remember a conversation I had a couple years ago around Black Lives Matter and how like Black Lives Matter for especially a lot of young black people is that it's almost become this sort of spiritual group for them. They almost use it in the same way that churches used to function for them. And so can you talk a little bit about how these sacred spaces are now kind of connecting and converging with uh, activism with groups like Black Lives Matter and, and mm. you know, other groups like it. You know, there just seems to be these connections between spirituality and activism that are really pronounced in these kind of spaces now. Well, um, I also realized I didn't quite answer your last question about what movement chaplaincy is, but this gives me a chance to talk about oh, great, that because great. that's exactly what movement chaplains do is they connect the spiritual and the movement world. So I think in our kind of our last iteration of movement, right, the civil rights movement or the Southern freedom movement, 
we you, we often saw ordained spiritual leaders at the front, right? Like that, or at least that's now kind of how we envision it, right? Like a a, a wall of clergy, you know, especially those those iconic pictures, right? Of like MLK and he's flanked with you know uh, a priest um, and a rabbi, right? And mm-hmm. so this idea of them like bringing their moral leadership, but the world has changed. And um, whether it's young people, whether it's just people in general, right, we have all these statistics about how the church has changed and how less people are going to church and less people are religiously affiliated. Um, And that's not just in in churches, even that's other religions as well outside of Christianity. And so leading from the front like that isn't always what people want from you out of movements, even if you're theologically trained. We've realized how bankrupt our religions are when it comes to moral leadership around white supremacy, around, you know, so many of the other oppressions that people face. And so people with that either spiritual training or, or leaning need to use their gifts. You need to use the, the gifts of the deep wells of their faith in a different way. And that's what movement chaplaincy really does. Mm. It says, yes, all this is sacred work, changing our world for the better, you know, making things more just actually bringing shalom like a, a a type of mutual peace that is really rooted in our mutual flourishing that is sacred work it's not necessary that we all believe the same things theologically or go to the same place to worship but it is necessary that we realize that this is internal and sacred work that has to be done inside of ourselves as well as out there when we're trying mm-hmm. to make policy changes or community changes. And so the movement chaplain is attuned to that. The movement chaplain has a sense of what our movements are about and need. And so we do some some very light work around movements, um, like when and when we train folks. And then people also, movement chaplains also need to have some sense of what it means to to hold sacred space, right? These memorials that are popping up, right? Like so how do you keep that sacred space? How do you attend to someone who, whose eyes are open to the injustice of, of the world for the first time, or someone who is carrying all of those injustices because their body, their Black body, their queer body, whatever, um, it can be multiple things, and one body is holding all that pain and dealing with this current pain of, of a, a death, a specific death or something. So movement chaplains serve in that role, just like there are chaplains in universities or hospitals who attend to transitions and pain and celebrations, all of the things that we humans go through, movement chaplains are are providing that same thing. And they're just one of many spiritual leaders, spiritual caregivers that that are really starting to serve more in our movements. Um, and so we have a lot of conversations with other folks, herbalists, uh, Reiki practitioners. Like mm. it, there are so many people that are like, I want to use my gifts to support people who are trying to change the world. Um, and so you really are seeing these ideas of support, accompaniment, healing, be, being more central. I wouldn't say it's quite central yet because we still have a lot of uh, bad practices, like draining practices in our movements, a lot of eating each other alive. Um, but I think it's becoming more central that we know we have to take care of each other 
along with caring for the world and changing the world. And so that's what a movement chaplain's role and focus is, is how do we support the leaders, support these everyday folks that are trying to get involved in change um, so that we can actually have sustainable movements, keep people in it for the long haul. There might be some listeners who are listening and are really, really interested in this work, and they might be thinking to themselves right now, I really want to become a movement chaplain. This feels like what I've been called to be for a really long time, and they just didn't know it existed. What would you say is like the first best step for someone who wants to become a movement chaplain? Well, I would say some people already are. (laughs) And it's like when they hear about it, they're like, oh, that's what I've been doing. Mm. Right. Like I'm the person that people come to and, you know, the group gets together and protests on the weekends or, um, you know, I'm actually involved in my local whatever group and and I'm that person. We need to have a vigil. I'm the one planning it when we need to have a processing circle. I'm the one everybody kind of looks at Um, or there are three or four of us. And I didn't realize we'd been filling this role. You know, like I also bring the water. So I didn't really realize I was doing this which doesn't mean that it's not good to get some extra training. Sometimes we do like one-on-ones and it's like an hour and a half and it's online and we just kind of do a a kind of flyover of what movement chaplaincy is. But we also have this 12-week training. And I do think it's really great because it's, you know, the it's 12 weeks. The first four weeks are really your inner work, Mm. which I think sometimes we skip over, right? but it's a lot of the inner work that we need to do to understand who we are and what we're bringing into the room, who our ancestors and elders are, all those things. Cause we, you know, none of us just pop out of nowhere. (laughs) So like, where do you come from and what's your lineage in this work? And if you're not sure, how do you, how do you awaken that? Um, Then we get into what is movement chaplaincy and we study what other people are doing, um, what it could look like for you. And then we really, um, and the skills that that means we need to develop. And then we we talk about kind of the vision for it, really putting it into practice. Um, and what it would look like to form a local group to, to actually be there for folks paid or unpaid. Like, how do you actually step into this role? And so I think people have to look at what other training they want, right? Like, you're not just going to be a great movement chaplain because you're already ordained. I'm not ordained. Actually, uh, both Hillary and I, who are the lead teachers, who are the lead developers of the program, neither one of us are ordained. Hmm. We work with ordained folks, but that's, uh, to me, not a prerequisite. I'm also not a certified chaplain in any way. Um, I come from the work of, of birth work. Um, I was a mm-hmm. doula, childbirth educator, and lactation consultant for over a decade. And it's, I think, a very similar skill set. We're in conversation with with that world of of you know, accredited certified chaplaincy, but that's not our, that's not where either Hillary or I come from. So I would say, even if you are, uh, you know, already certified as a chaplain, even if you're ordained, that doesn't mean you're ready to be a movement chaplain. You have to figure out where your gaps are and then seek out that kind of training. Um, Do you need to know more about movements? Do you need to know more about spiritual care in a multi-faith, multicultural setting, right? Because on the street, in movements, you're going to meet a lot of different mm-hmm. people. You're not just going to be now with all Christians or with all people who are white or all people, right? You're going to be with kinds of people and you want to get that, you for that and the experience, honestly, you want to be with people. 
I think involvement in movement is, is important. So if you don't already know folks out there doing stuff, you need to get to know some people locally so that you can be a trusted person, even if we're talking about you offering movement faculty services two years from now. They need to know who you are so they can trust you. Um, so there are lots of entry points and lots of first steps depending on where you are in your life, in your understanding of movements, in your understanding of spiritual care, in your own education. Um, I'm all about accessibility, so I just don't like one pathway. I don't want people to think they have to have gone to seminary or theological school in order to be a movement chaplain. And uh, even though I'm a huge fan of, of the Daring Compassion Movement Chaplaincy course, our course, I don't necessarily think you have to go through our course. Mm. Um, I think you need to be prepared and you have to be willing to learn. You have to get some experience, be willing to be mentored and to be changed by the work. I mean, and that's one of the most important things that you are willing to kind of constantly be on that journey um, that Grace Lee Boggs said of that we, we are changed by the work. You mentioned a little bit ago about being a doula for a really long period of time in your life. And I've heard you describe yourself as a justice doula. What do you mean by that's justice right. doula? And what does that work entail? What does that look like? Well, um, as a birth doula, well, pregnancy, birth, and postpartum doula, which is what I was for years. Uh, a doula's most important tools are her heart and her hands. And I was a, I had all the tools, right? I had a birth ball and a bag full of, you know, all the things that you can use to make the birthing person feel supported, to stay hydrated, to get in different positions, to be rested to figure out how to move their body. And what I realized after not just being a doula, but also being a doula trainer was that all of that stuff was nice, but really unnecessary. Um, when we go back to the original studies on doulas, which doulas are, are people who support people in birthing, they don't catch the babies, just FYI in case we all often get mixed up with midwives. We don't do any of the life and death stuff. We're doing the support and accompaniment stuff. But the original studies were truly of a woman sitting in a room with the birthing person and watching and, uh, and accompanying them and not touching them at all. And that just bit of presence actually changed the birth rates, made it safer and easier to birth Wow! just because they were there witnessing them. So accompaniment, saying, I see you, you're really here and doing this and you are not alone. That is powerful enough to change physical outcomes for other human beings. So James Baldwin talked about being an accompanier in the movement. And so we know that this is a, a real thing <clears throat> across situations. And so I learned after all of education I had, all of that educating other people on becoming a doula, that when people are going through life transitions, when people are in moments of high stress, when people are in pain, what they most need is someone to accompany them and someone to tell them that they're not alone, um, that they, there may be parts of it they have to do by themselves, but that they will come out of this and they will again be surrounded by care. And so there is always, even if you can't in that exact moment feel someone, there will be someone with them because the doula never leaves. The doula stays until the baby is born, or at least hands it off. Hands off the role to someone else, 
and also is all about caring for everyone in the room. So sometimes it's the partner that I'm saying, okay, have, you need to go sit down or, you know, let me get you a, a drink of water um, or then helps uh, somebody else in the room put their hands in just the right place to give support mm-hmm. to the birthing person. So you're really not just teaching, you're, you're not just caring for the birthing person, you are caring for the other people caring for them. You're checking in on the other people. And so it creates a community of care, right? Because everyone in that room learns to care for themselves better, care for each other. Um, and it changes the atmosphere of the room. So all of those kinds of principles transfer to how we birth new ideas, uh, more love, more justice into the world. Um, We need that same kind of support. We need to be accompanied. We need to know that, that someone is there saying, I'm with you. I care about you. We're going to get through this. You need someone reminding you to sit down every once in a while. You need someone to remind you to take a sip of water, to change your position, to rest, um, to get up. Um, you know, like now we got to get up and walk, right? Like, and so it's those same things. And it's also creating that culture of care within movements. And so it's not even just about individual justice doulas or movement chaplains. It's community of care so that we can birth this justice into the world. And so it it just, it made so much sense that we're just basically, it's the same skill set. We're just birthing something different. And, and re- in some ways, even rebirthing ourselves. And so I, I feel still very connected to that work because it's, it's so similar. When you talk about doula as this sort of accompanier, it reminds me of some folks I've heard say something along the lines of, I don't want allies, I want accomplices. And it really yeah. seems to remind me of, of that notion. Yeah, for sure. We, ha- we have to be in this together, right? This can't be your, uh, oh, oh, poor you who's, you know, you're going through all this oppression. Like, you need to understand that while there is anyone suffering in the world that you're suffering to, mm. um, you know, that if you are witnessing or, or you know that my life is being cut short because of environmental disasters or that. Uh, there are, you know, ways that I am prevented from living my full life because, uh, you know, I am a black person who can't move free freely or, you know, like there are so many ways that, that someone else's oppression is tied to my own either internalized or actual physical oppression. We have to, you know, realize that we're just, we're tied together. <laughs> like. And so it's, it's imperative that we stand shoulder to shoulder, you know, that we do this work side by side and everyone has a different role. It doesn't mean everybody has to be out in the street. And, and also that's one of those things about movement chaplaincy is it is not just being there at the protest, right? Like uh, that is protest chaplaincy. Some people only show up kind of like a medic, right? Like they only show up when we're doing actions, but Movement chaplaincy, my vision for movement chaplaincy is that it's happening at every point of the movement cycle. Mm. It's happening when we're planning, right? Like, and we're checking in to see how people are doing emotionally and spiritually. It's happening at the action. 
Um, and of course, in the crowd, maybe specially, um, you know, decorated. So you have a vest or you have a hat or um, like our crew in Nashville has worn purple hats and it's like care team. I was in another action where we had little purple ties on our arm and, and um, an herb out, uh, outside of that little tie. So people knew that we were about healing. And we literally walked through the crowd giving out um, water and um, like little herbal packets and different things um, to those that wanted them and wanted that kind of support. Um, to aftercare, um, I was involved in a, a big action with Mahente, and we had some folks you scale a building and afterwards, and they got arrested. And then afterwards, they needed some body work after everything their body had been through. So like connecting with body workers in the community who could help them recover, right? Mm -hmm. um, because we, you know, even if it's emotional, like they're processing through so much through their body. Um, not just from the climbing, but for also being in jail and the trauma mm -hmm. of being in in the jail system, right? So, and then there's more processing, right? There's there are healing circles um, that you may need to process what happened, or there might be beef that happened because different people did different things at the action, and so now you got to talk about it, right? So there's always something that's happening in a movement cycle that um, that movement chaplains and and our caregivers and movement can come alongside people and say hey, uh, let's do this other work. Um, we've, we're, we've, we're also doing this outer work, but let's do the spiritual emotional work that we need to be doing to process everything we're doing. And that's that to me is a little bit different. And that's the movement chaplain is like, I'm going to be there through all of this and mm -hmm. not just a protest. Mm -hmm. At the beginning of the episode, you talked about that you were a womanist. And I'm really curious about how womanism manifests throughout all of your work. Mm. Yeah, for me, finding womanist theology was finding home. I, you know, I was familiar with Alice Walker, much like everyone else is familiar with her, with the color purple and um, the film primarily. And I didn't know anything about womanism, of course, as a child, and and that she had come up with this definition of womanism. And then I was also too young for like the first wave of womanist theology in the 80s um, out of Union. And so I didn't go back for theological training until I didn't do my um, master's in um, intercultural studies um, until I like 14 years after I did undergrad. So I had had children and kind of had other careers and did other things and decided to go to seminary. Um, but even at that point, I didn't, I didn't do a program that was a womanist program, but that's when I was starting to be awakened to womanist theology. I mean, I, my, I came out of like very conservative evangelicalism, <laughs> which is a whole nother thing. Uh, my theological training wasn't exactly like radical feminist or radical womanist. Right. You know, like that's not the kind of church or anything that I, I didn't have any real world experience with that. And it wasn't until I started reading womanist theology that I was like, what? Like, mm. I mean, you know how it is when you're coming out of deconstructing, uh, coming out of evangelicalism, like, and just learning there are even different theologies. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, it's like, wait a minute, people believe different things. <laughs> And are still Christians? Like, I didn't know. So it, it was a natural 
fit that it kind of permeated everything I did because what womanist theology said is, yeah, you're black and a woman. And of course that in influences everything you understand, think, believe, and live. It's like, wait, I don't have to just be like a blob that is somehow, you know, above all these nasty things of actual flesh and earth. Like I, like theology just doesn't come from the sky. It's actually related to the person who the theology comes out of. Mm. Fascinating, right? Because I think white Western theology tries to present itself as like just out of the sky, you know, mm-hmm. like there is no person mm-hmm. behind it. It just is theology, right? That's why we name every other right. kind of theology as something else. We tend not to name, you know, white German old guy theology, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it's, so womanist made me like when I discovered that I was like, oh, it's okay for your theology to be intimately intertwined with who you are, the body you live in, the way you move through the world, how the world responds to you. Um, And there are particular things you bring to the text. There is a way that Black women care for themselves and others that it makes sense that we see the Gospels or the, the scripture in a particular way. And I don't have to somehow leave who I am at the door to do theology. In fact, who I am is the gift to the theology that I do, mm. uh, my practice of theology. And so when I understood that, it wasn't even about reading a bunch of womanist theology. I mean, I do read womanist theology, but I also understand that, my, that I'm bringing it with my life. And in fact, it should open me up to understanding even other types of theologies and and so it just like for example the uh, um alice walker's original definition of womanism you know talks about how woman a womanist loves men and women and all like basically all people sometimes sexually and uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, but basically removes herself occasionally for health, right? And so, like, you actually don't have to kill yourself for everyone else. Like, you don't have to martyr yourself for everyone else. The actual practice of caring for yourself is sacred. The, the practice of having a wide expanse of love for all kinds of people, whether that's emotional or sexual, like whatever that love is, that is actually a sacred thing. Mm. Right. And so that then has influenced how I understand love in general. Um, Like my love leaves no one out. It can't like, I have to like love needs to be expansive and more than I can imagine it could be. And that then influences how I interact with the text. And, and also that it's okay for me to take time away. That that and I and I now there are places where I can again see that and recognize that in the text, right? So, like in in Faith Matters Network, we are serious about time off. We're serious about recognizing each other's need for time away. We have our grief anniversaries. So several of us have lost parents, and those are on our shared professional calendar. Mm-hmm. So that we can hold those days as sacred for one another. So, you know, we build rest into our programs. 
our daring compassion training has a week of at least one week, sometimes more than that, of rest between these four mini mini courses, uh, because people need to rest in order to integrate new information, right? So we're always learning. <clears throat> There's always more ways that we can incorporate things, but it, because it's who we are and what we believe, it's incorporated into everything that we do. She's so sanctified. It sometimes can seem like, you know, with a world filled with white supremacy and patriarchy and homophobia and even climate change, and not to mention many other threats to the world, it sometimes feels like healing is just not possible. But what keeps you going in this healing work? Hmm. Well, you know, like a lot of people talk about like, oh, I have to do this work because it makes me do my own. (laughs) You know, this idea that like, it's not just for other people, it's really so that I can stay alive. And so I think there is a a call to authenticity that I know I have to answer and that I have had a tendency to work myself into the ground before, that I have almost been willing to die on the altar of justice in order to make something happen. Mm And, and that we will, there, there is this lie that like, oh, I will just push a little bit harder. I'll push a little bit harder and I'll, I'll, I'll rest someday. And are there people that have given their lives in, um, you know, a particular way, like have known they were facing death and have done this anyway? Absolutely. But I don't actually think we have to be martyrs. Mm. Um, I think we are there. We are up against, um, and if we want to spiritualize this, like powers and principalities that want us dead anyway. Um, particularly those of us who are different in any way. There are already forces and systems that want us dead. We don't have to volunteer for that. Like we can actually fight for our lives. And I will say, as a womanist as well, like. This idea of needing to give yourself up in order or to be um, a sacrificial lamb, we're not with that. Like, that's not work. The world already expects Black women to be the sacrificial lamb, so I'm not trying to do that. It expects trans people, queer people to be sacrificial lambs for the good of the whole, and absolutely not. And so I think focusing on that I want to live, <laughs> that I want my children to be able to live, I then have to ask, well, what, what does it take to live? Um, and so I have to create my world that way. I have to create a household in which I can live. I have to create a community in which I can live. Communities, you know, groups of family and loved ones that allow me to live. I have to work in such a way that I can live. All of that has to actually be happening in my life in order to teach anything about healing, in order to do anything where I'm providing spiritual care, healing care for others. I have to be doing it 
that is one of the lessons I've learned from studying our elders and our ancestors is that they weren't always doing that. And that like, there are some cautionary tales there about how we need to be caring for each other so that we can live to be elders. So we can have these long lives so we can become cranky old people who, <laughs> you know, have disagreements with the young people later. Um, Cause if we're all burned out or dead then we can't do that. We can't pass anything on um, or there are fewer of us to do it. And so I'm not trying to die. I'm not trying to let the state kill me. <laughs> I'm not going to just roll over and take it. But that doesn't mean that I just relentlessly fight harder in a way that's going to harm me. It means I learn to do things in ways where the, the burden is spread out until it can be eliminated where we are actually caring for each other and caring for ourselves. But I have to be doing that as well. I can't just preach it. Um, and so I, I'm continually brought back to it um, by doing that work and, and continually finding new ways to replenish myself. Sometimes it's dan dancing, sometimes it's meditation. Um, sometimes it's eating a really delicious meal and having really good wine. Like I have to figure out what are those things. And then I have to pursue them that I don't so I'm not gone too soon might be really obvious but how is your work inspiring and liberating theological work oh I think it's inspiring and liberating because it's actually asking people to live into their bodies now into mm -hmm. their lives now so much of our theological work can be heady can be uh you know just about theories and i'm not i've never really been attracted to that i'm not interested in that if it doesn't actually make the lives of people who are living right now materially better i'm just really not that interested mm -hmm. and i don't think any kind of god or divinity is interested in it either <laughs> like i just i don't so why let's not do that let's not play with that mm -hmm. i'm not interested one of my favorite quotes from my one of my favorite theologians she says that if god is immaterial then god does not matter yeah like what are we doing if we're just talking sitting around talking i mean i love to talk clearly but <laughs> i don't like our theology has to we have to be able to touch it and so i hope that my work is inspiring in that way that we're that we're talking about a a lived experience, something that is in our bodies and in our spirit, and that it's outside of one tradition. I think particularly movement chaplaincy has to be very savvy in in kind of the interfaith, multi-faith. Um, there has to be a lot of that kind of dexterity, is what I'm saying. So like because you have to be able to kind of move outside of your tradition, you have to be able to respect other traditions, you have to ha to come with humility. And so if your theology is wrapped up in like what you believe or if as belief being the the kind of main driver, right? Like you have to have particular spiritual tenets that you can um express through writing or through speaking, then you're probably not going to do that well. Because you, ha you just, that's, that again, just stays in your head. 
it's a very Western understanding of doing theology. You, if it doesn't actually come out in how you eat and live and play and grow things and interact with other humans, then and with animals, it's not a, it's actually not a thing. It has no substance. Right. And so movement chaplaincy and even just accompaniment and care period has a substance. Um, and that substance should be available outside of your religious tech. Like if you had to not have your, your texts, your, any kind of, you know, laws or whatever from your tradition, you should still be able to do whatever it is. Um, and so I think that that's what we're talking about with movement chaplaincy and just a company where we're, we're, we have, it has to be uh, physical. And so I'm, I, I hope that that's what it, what it brings people to as they kind of get involved with movement chaplaincy and with um, my work at Faith Matters. Last question, Mickey, how can listeners get connected to you and your work? So um, Faith Matters Network dot org um we are um we have a website i've just actually recently updated um the daring compassion movement chaplaincy project page um which we are a larger project we have more than just the training um but that's the the daring compassion training that all that stuff has been updated as well we have a whole lot of things there articles um news articles where people have been talking about movement chaplaincy we have, we'll be adding more stuff. Um, I think soon we'll be showing off some of what our students have been up to. Mm. People now forming these movement chaplaincy crews around the country and possibly internationally. We have a lot of international students. And uh, just things where we've been on, you know, different shows and whatever. So um, would love for people to check that out. We also, our course is actually held on the School of Global Citizenry. So that website, School of Global Citizenry.com. Um, and it has kind of the full layout of class um, and more information there. And people can register there. There's also a link to that from faithmattersnetwork.org. Um, and they can find my bio there, learn more about me, learn more about all of our work. And because we work with, we also work with clergy. We have a program called um, Disciples of Welcome, where we've been working with clergy in North Carolina um, to learn how to bridge divides. So we have, you know, a lot of uh, places to keep in touch as well. Um, we have, you know, Facebook, our Instagram, Twitter. Um, and so it's just easy to find Faith Matters Network there. And you can also find me on all of those as well. I'm the only Key Scott Bay Jones that exists. So <laughs> it's easy to find me on Facebook and, and Twitter and Instagram. And yeah, I love talking to people about all of this stuff. Um, so happy to be in touch. Wonderful. Well, Mickey, I am so grateful for you and your work. You're one of those people where whenever I think about who are the people that have really influenced the way that I do like public theology and I do my ethics out mm -hmm. in the world, you're one of those people that I think of. I just love the way that you navigate all of this. And uh, I, I definitely have learned so much from you. And so thank you so much for sharing a little bit more about yourself and your work and movement chaplaincy. Uh, it was such a great conversation, and I'm just so mm. grateful uh, for you and this conversation. Mm, thank you so much. If love is a language you don't know how to spell, if love is a story.
If you would like to connect with Mickey and Reverend Seku and their work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Menega. And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates. Yeah.